Come to OMG on Savory 6th Street for DGIF. Thank God it's funny. Every third Friday at OMG, check us out. Free shows, great drink specials, hilarious comics. Every Friday, San Francisco, gouging ya. Here we go. Free comedy with Mutiny Radio. You know you love us. Third Fridays of every month. OMG, 6th Street. Come on out with your friends on Mutiny Radio, G-G-I-F at O-M-G.
shepherd boy. He killed Goliath. And he shout for joy, little David, play on your harp. Hallelujah, hallelujah, little David, play on your harp. Hallelujah, little David, play on, play on your harp. Yeah, hallelujah, hallelujah, play on your harp. Hallelujah. Done told you once, done told you twice. You never get to heaven. Shooting dice, little David, play on your harp. Yeah, hallelujah, hallelujah, little David, play on your harp. Hallelujah, little David, play on, play on your harp. Hallelujah, hallelujah, little David, play on your harp. Hallelujah. Hush, hush, somebody's calling my name. Hush, hush, somebody's calling my name. Hush, hush, somebody's calling my name. Oh, my Lord, oh, my Lord, what shall I do? It sounds like freedom. Somebody's calling my name. It sounds like freedom. Somebody's calling my name. Somebody's calling my name. Oh, my Lord, oh, my Lord, what shall I do? Hush, hush, don't say a mumbling word. Hush, hush, don't say a mumbling word. Hush, hush, don't say a mumbling word. Oh, my Lord, oh, my Lord, what shall I do? Each other, 
talking, I heard a complaining and spied an old woman, the picture of gloom. She gazed at the mud on her doorstep, was raining, and this was her song as she wielded her broom. Oh, life is a toil and love is a trouble. Beauty will fade and riches will flee. Pleasures they dwindle and prices they double, and nothing is as I would wish it to be. There's too much of worryment goes in a bonnet. There's too much of ironing goes in a shirt. There's nothing that pays for the time you waste on it. There's nothing that lasts us but trouble and dirt. In March it is mud, it is slush in December. The midsummer breezes are loaded with dust. In fall the leaves litter, in muddy September. The wallpaper rots and the candlesticks rust. Oh, life is a toil and love is a trouble. Beauty will fade and riches will flee. Pleasures they dwindle and prices they double. And nothing is as I would wish it to be. There's worms in the cherries and slugs on the roses, and ants in the sugar and mice in the pies. The rubbish of spiders no mortal supposes, and ravaging roaches and damaging flies. With grease and with grime from corner to center, forever at war and forever alert. No rest for a day lest the enemy enter. I've spent my whole life in a struggle with dirt. Oh, life is a toil and love is a trouble. Beauty will fade and riches will flee. Pleasures they dwindle and prices they double. And nothing is as I would wish it to be. Last night in my dreams I was stationed forever on a far little rock in the midst of the sea. My one chance in life was a ceaseless endeavor to sweep off the waves as they swept over me. Alas, was no dream ahead I behold it. I see I am helpless, my fate to avert. She laid down her broom, her apron she folded. She lay down and died and was buried in dirt. One day I was walking, I heard a complaining and spied an old woman the pic. And good morning, Labor and Love fans. This is the B, and you're tuned to Labor and Love on Mutiny Radio. Mutiny Radio here at 21st and Florida, 2781 21st Street. The name of the show is Labor and Love, and you just heard Ann Hill with the Housewives' Lament. Life spent cleaning up dirt, only she's buried in it at the end. Before that, we had Linda Tillery and the Cultural, Cultural Heritage Choir with two songs. This Train and Don't You Ever Let Nobody Get Your Spirit Down. Okay, this is the B and this is Mutiny Radio where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is, where you work, you're on the menu. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's only a waste of time. 
Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Welcome, everybody. And if it's Saturday at 10, this must be Labor and Love. And welcome to the show, Labor History, Opinion, Commentary, Labor Movement, Past and Present and music of social significance. Of gloom, she gazed at the mud on her Okay, what have we got for you today? Well, we've got Tina Turner singing her song, Nutville, Tennessee, where she came from. Tina Turner, widely appreciated both as an artist and respected as a person. Uh, someone who went about her business, who escaped an abusive relationship. People try to make uh, some kind of a superwoman out of her, but she always insisted that she wasn't. Buddhism helped her escape from her abusive relationship with Ike and other such stuff. Solidarity News, Labor Radio, Labor History in Two. A look at the British, British mystic poet William Blake who saw so clearly the Mind forge manacles with which we all tie ourselves up. What happened last week? An eight to one opinion in the Supreme Court against labor unions, but unions can still strike. Don't let the Supreme Court tell you otherwise. Minneapolis general strike we missed last month, month of May, San Francisco strike of 1934, and the other even bloodier strike in Minneapolis, Mother Axe was a witness. It was Larissa, Luisa Moreno, union organizer for the ages. Situation room, how the Republican plans are attacking families. Eduardo Galeano, great voice of liberty and freedom. Revolution. Overworked and understaffed dollar general workers rally against cuts. Read that if you have a dollar store near you. What's that about? Right now, though, let's play Radio Labor Worldwide. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, June 2nd, 2023. I'm Mark Belanchet. 
In the report this week, the UN Declaration of Human Rights and Labor as a Commodity. A new wave of artificial intelligence in the workplace. The Labor Start report about union events and singing. Nothing but buttons and bells and lights all over the factory. This is Radio Labor. Everyone has the right to freedom of peaceful assembly and association. Everyone has the right to work, to free choice of employment, to just and favorable conditions of work, and to protection against unemployment. Everyone, without any discrimination, has the right to equal pay for equal work. Three, everyone who works has the right to just and favorable remuneration, ensuring for himself and his family an existence worthy of human dignity and supplemented, if necessary, by other means of social protection. Four, everyone has the right to form and to join trade unions. That is the American diplomat Eleanor Roosevelt reading parts of the UN Declaration of Human Rights. The declaration was adopted after the horrors of the Second World War and the realization that peace can only be achieved if there is social justice. Recently, the International Labor Organization held a webinar on the relationship between the Declaration and its foundational principles. The ILO is the UN specialized agency focused on matters of work in the world. One of the speakers at the webinar was the chair of the workers' group at the ILO, Kathleen Pesquier from the Netherlands. She mentions the ILO's 1944 Declaration of Philadelphia, which declared that labor was not some good to be sold in the marketplace. She also mentions the ILO's Convention 87, which is an international law that calls for freedom of association. In other words, the right to join a labor union. Ms. Pesquier. Let me start by emphasizing again the uniqueness of the ILO, which goes back to 1990. Many people don't realize how unique it was that in 1990 the ILO was established which is a labor organization after the war. It was not, it was really their recognition that if you want to do something about peace, you have to start with social justice. But to start with social justice, recognizing that you need employers and workers on board, not just as advisors, but really as participants, as taking responsibility, as being part of decision-making, that was unique. There were, I think, Almost no countries at all in the world that did have a system like that already in place. So I think that's really important to emphasize. Yes, solidarity, but also adversarial issues. And in 1919, there were a number of them. But I think the importance was the recognition that you, if you want to make progress together, you have to sit down, listen to each other, negotiate progress. If it comes to the preconditions for that, to be able to play that role, unions have to be independent, independent from government and independent from enterprise. And the other way around, business has to be independent from government. And that is a fundamental starting point, I think. The second thing is that if I look into how the UN has developed its notion of civic space, it's really important to realize, and I took this from this UN guidance note from 2020, that says civic space is the environment that enables people and groups to participate meaningfully in the political, economic, social, and cultural life of their societies. It means that those actors should be able to express themselves 
freely in full security and affect change peacefully and effectively. And this requires mechanisms that allow effective access to information dialogue and the expression of dissenting and unpopular views and to allow for dissenting views and unpopular views to be expressed is part of democratic and civic space. And let me then come to what is the strong concern on the union side. When societies suppress the voices of unions, when they don't allow freedom of association, when they stop unions from doing what they're trying to achieve, then very often also civic space is in danger. And that is why we think it is very, very timely that today we are expressing the importance of the Convention 87 and the Declaration of Human Rights and how they relate to each other, where unions cannot participate and be active freely and independently. Very often other actors also cannot do that. The ITUC, the International Trade Union Confederation, has a global rights index tracking a decade-long erosion of workers' organization collective bargaining rights very closely connected to restrictions of freedom of speech in the assembly. And in our view, there is another strong connection, which is the importance of the Philadelphia Declaration putting an emphasis on the fact that labor is not a commodity. And part of the weakening of unions and also the difficulty for unions to be able to organize and have some counter power in the debate is because of the commodification of labor. We see the informal economy not reducing, but expanding. We see uh, migration flows leading to a lot of migrants, legal and illegal, although we always say there is no illegal people, yet regular and irregular migration that are providing a lot of work to societies, but without rights. And we see women workers struggling to get access to labor markets on proper terms. And many of these groups, precarious work increasing, many of these groups have difficulty to really exercise their rights to freedom of association and collective bargaining. And that reduces also the power of unions to really demand and require to be taken seriously and to contribute to the well-being of their society. Predictions of employment upheaval and job losses are being made as a new wave of artificial intelligence hits workplaces. The latest development comes from a company called OpenAI. In November 2022, it released a program called ChatGPT. The program is being used to produce human-like conversation, compose emails, write essays, and create computer code. To explore the implications of ChatGPT, the International Labour Organization produced a podcast on the topic. Hello and welcome to the ILO's Future of Work podcast. I'm Sophie Fisher. This programme is where we explore some of the key trends that are shaping the world of work. And few of those trends are as hot right now, or as hotly debated, as the effects of artificial intelligence or AI. What's brought this into the headlines is the launch of ChatGPT. ChatGPT is a natural language processing tool driven by AI technology. Two things seem to make it particularly interesting or scary, depending upon your point of view. 
The first is how well it seems to be able to mimic human language. It can answer questions or write text or code. And the second is how quickly it has been adopted. Within two months of launch, it has attracted more than 100 million users. It's clear from this that the impact of artificial intelligence on the world of work is not something we need to plan for in the future. It's here and it's now, and we need to deal with it. So to discuss how the world of work might do this, I have with me Antonio Cassilli, who is a professor of sociology at the Polytechnic Institute of Paris and is co-director of the Deep Lab Research Group. Welcome, Antonio. Thank you. Massive amounts of hype around ChatGPT. ChatGPT is one form of artificial intelligence. We are told that this time it is going to revolutionize the world of work. Is this true or is this hype? Well, um, well. first of all, thank you for uh, not pulling the number of this intro was written by ChatGPT. A lot of journalists tend to do it. Yes, Ella. this was written I by a human. I really appreciate it. Well, anyways, so uh, my uh, point is that basically uh, there is a lot of hype, as you pointed out, and uh, uh, this hype uh, is uh, actually um, produced or uh, prompted uh, by the very uh, persons who produce uh, ChatGPT. OpenAI is a, a company that has to sell a product, and this product uh, is, of course, um, well, destined to be uh, uh, used in several industries, uh, in training, in consulting, in uh, software development. So, of course, they are interested in uh, us believing that it's going to revolutionize the sectors. Here with his report about union events is Labour Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. This week, our top story section included links to the news that almost 30,000 Canadian television and radio performers marked the end of 12 months on the picket line, with no end in sight to the lockout by commercial engagers. We also carried stories about the renewal of the global campaign to free union activists in Belarus and the leadership crisis in the Danish labor movement. A random sample from our news pages this week includes articles from India where trade unions are demonstrating in support of women wrestlers accusing a wrestling federation official with close ties to the Modi government of sexual harassment and assault, an organizing push by garment workers in Uganda, and a big win for casino workers in Nepal. A theme in this week's coverage of labor news from around the globe is the growing evidence that wage theft is a common practice with employers, large and small. The latest evidence of this is the discovery by Australian unions that transnational mining giant BHP has been shorting tens of thousands of workers on their pay for years. This week, our Working Women news page carried news of a campaign to end sexual harassment of garment workers in Bangladesh, why women don't earn the same pension entitlements as men in the United Kingdom, and the exclusion of women from the social dialogue process in Sri Lanka. Stories appearing on our Health and Safety page in Newswire this week include a nurses' strike in New Zealand over safe staffing levels, the assassination of yet another journalist in the Philippines, and from around the world, items on the ways in which unions are confronting employers who demand that employees work outdoors in excessive heat. 
Our current photo of the week is a shot of retired U.S. union members demanding that the bank which administers their pension plan adopt a green investment strategy. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is the American folk singer Joe Glazer. I went down, down, down to the factory early on a Monday morning. When I got down to the factory, it was lonely, it was forlorn. I couldn't find Joe, Jack, John, or Jim, nobody could I see. Nothing but buttons and bells and lights all over the factory. Well, I walked, walked, walked into the foreman's office to find out what was what. I looked him in the eye and I said, what goes? This is the answer I got. His eyes turned red and green and blue and it suddenly dawned on me. There was a robot sitting in the seat where the foreman used to be. And I walked all around, all around, up and down, across that factory. I watched all the buttons and the bells and the lights. It was a mystery to me. I hollered, Hank, Frank, Ike, Mike, Joe, Jack, Don, Dan, Roy, Ray, Ed, Fred, Pete. And a great big mechanical voice boomed out, All your buddies are obsolete. All your buddies are obsolete. All your buddies are obsolete. Well, I was scared, scared, scared. I was worried, I was sick as I left that factory. Decided that I had to see the president of the whole darn company. When I got up to his office, he was rushing out the door with a scowl upon his face. For there was a great big mechanical executive sitting in the president's place. I went home, home, home to my ever-loving wife. I told about the factory. She kissed me, she hugged me, she cried a little bit as she sat on my knee. Now I don't understand all the buttons and the bells But there's one thing I will say I thank the Lord that love's still made In the good old-fashioned way And that's it, labor news you can use. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is an article about artificial intelligence. For years, artificial intelligence has been touted as a job-destroying, politically problematic technology, but without any real advances. That may be about to change radically with new developments in machine learning and computer algorithms. Recently, the Stanford Social Innovation Review, based in California, conducted a webinar on the subject. 
One of the featured speakers was Daniel Bertosa, the Assistant General Secretary of Public Services International. The PSI represents some 30 million public sector workers in 154 countries. Mr. Bertosa. If you look at the history of capital and labour relations, especially since industrialization, it's essentially one of power between capital uh, and labour. And the employer controlled the capital, uh, and particularly where there was unemployment, a reserve pool of labour, that gave capital quite a lot of power in terms of their negotiating the, that contract, uh, either a direct legal contract or a social contract um, with labour. One of the things that labour has had, and particularly skilled labour has had since industrialization, is quite a detailed understanding of the production process. And it's often been better than the boss. So even if the boss owns a printing press or a machine, and even if the boss can find a worker at some point to run it, if you... If you with Labor. One of the things that Labor has had, and particularly skilled Labor has had since industrialization, is quite a detailed understanding of the production process. And it's often been better than the boss. So even if the boss owns a printing press or a machine, and even if the boss can find a worker at some point to run it if you, if you withdraw your Labor, your ability to understand how that machine runs and what that machine does and how it relates to other machines and other parts of the production process is actually a piece of, of valuable information that's captured by, by workers. And what it means is that strikes worked, essentially. You know, withdrawing your labour was a tool that you had as a worker that enabled you to deploy, at least to threaten to deploy, uh, when you're trying to balance up that uh, relationship of power. And these days, we, we don't see as many strikes, but the idea of the problems of retention of skilled labour or quiet quitting, however you want to look at it, at least in the short term, uh, labour had um, some specialised knowledge about the process of production that was valuable and difficult to replace. But with machine learning and algorithmic decision-making, this is shifting. And we're seeing it for the first time amongst uh, very skilled work. There are these groups of workers that no longer know more about the production process than anyone else. And sometimes the boss themselves doesn't know much about the production process either. Sometimes there's a third party that understands the production process because they understand the algorithm better than anybody else. And this represents quite a fundamental shift in power between labour-capital relations. I don't think it's absolute, but I do think it's significant. And I think it sits underneath a lot of the shifts that we're seeing. And it means a couple of things. It means workers need to be concerned and focused a lot more about understanding and monitoring the changes, not in the, in the general sense, but as they impact and are applied to the production process in, in a worker's workplace or sector. But that is becoming much, much more important. And the second thing that's quite important is that they need to be involved in implementing the, the co-management of these systems, these algorithmic systems and machine learning, before the change is introduced. Because unlike in the past, once the change is introduced, it's very, very difficult to claw that back. I also think, and, and this is partly because I work for the Global Union Federation that represents public service workers, we need a much better understanding about the 
public good nature of data. Too many of the stories that are being told is about data as being gold or, or oil, something that you sort of you can dig up. And, and it makes sense because it is essentially extractive, the, the, what's going on with modern capitalism. But unfortunately, treating data like a, an old-fashioned commodity misses some of the perhaps the more important and subtle elements it, it, because it's, it's, a, it's often a networked commodity or it's a commodity that has traditional monopoly or public good values. So we think we need to think about it much more like a power network or a water network as opposed to you know, a lump of coal. And when it comes to governments and government workers, this is really important because governments are traditionally tasked with keeping a, bunch, a whole lot of data and we trust governments without without that or we we don't but we we are, we, we need to for some for some purposes and we and we focus the fact that government will have this data and we need to, to keep hold them to account and government needs this data to do some very basic governing and increasingly government no longer owns the the data that it needs to do governing or that it needs to do democracy so whether it's really basic stuff like controlling traffic in a city which is a which a basic a city management task. If Google Maps owns all that data, then cities are reliant on private corporations to do its basic governing. School test results are another area that are being increasingly commodified. And if it's government's job to educate its citizenry, and if that has a public good nature, then we've got to grapple with the, the very real issues of what happens when private corporations own this data. And they own it in a way that's valuable only at an aggregate level and not at a specific level. And then the last point in, in there is that work uh, workers are increasingly created. Well, they create this data, but there's individual data points. And this data is not that valuable as an individual data point. It's only valuable when it's collectively owned. And what worries me is that the corporations in particular are capturing these large sets of data, uh, and it's going to be very, very hard to, to claw that back after the fact. Because once that data has been commercialised and property rights have been allocated to it and it has a value, the politics of the situation mean it's very, very hard to regulate that after the fact. And I think just quickly, there are a couple of very quick uh, implications for this. One is the productivity gains that we're seeing aren't able to be captured by workers. And that's driving inequality, both within the workforce but across countries, depending on you know, who owns the companies that own the data. Uh, and I think that leads us to who sets the rules. And we're seeing increasingly trade agreements dealing with property rights in data and the regulation of data. And these trade agreements, essentially what they do is stop governments from regulating certain things. And so what that's doing is it's stopping the ability of workers and governments from introducing the regulation into these important areas of life before we realise that we need to regulate them. And because these treaties are binding, they're very hard to get out of because there's a lot less debate about trade negotiations as opposed to perhaps a national legislative proposal. A lot of the debate about the implications of what's going on before the average worker realises that they've lost something. And so I think all of these areas from a worker's perspective are absolutely critical before you can even get into some of the sort of daily issues that workers raise about the, the fact the boss has, has bought a piece of proprietary software that now tracks them. Uh, sitting behind that are all these broader political economy issues that if they're not grappled with institutionally and collectively, workers and their unions won't have any chance to actually try to, to claw back some of that power in the workplace because the tools and the institutions... This is Solidarity News on Radio Labour.
That's Radio Labor in um There's another one where artificial intelligence destroy jobs. Try that one. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor report recorded on Tuesday, May 30th, 2023. I'm Mark Boulanger. Predictions of employment upheaval and job losses are being made as a new wave of artificial intelligence hits workplaces. The latest development comes from a company called OpenAI. In November 2022, it released a program called ChatGPT. The program is being used to produce human-like conversation, compose emails, write essays, and create computer code. To explore the implications of ChatGPT, the International Labour Organization produced a podcast on the topic. Well, we've already heard this one, so let's listen to some music.
and gentlemen, the Orpheum Theater proudly presents the Johnny Otis Show. Johnny Otis's orchestra and a sensational troupe of rock and roll entertainers featuring Marie Adams and Three Tons of Joy, Mel Williams, Jeannie Sterling and the Moonbeams, Little Arthur Matthews, and Jackie Kelso. And here he is, the king of rock and roll, Johnny Otis. Well, come on, cats, let's rock this joint tonight. And shook the plaster off the wall. Oh, yeah. Shake it, Lucy, baby. Everything is gonna be all right. Oh,
next one is an old one. It's called Netbush!
Eine Nummer von den Stones, Tina Turner mit Honky Tonk Women. I snuck one in there <clears throat> from uh, Anna Mae Bullock, a.k.a. Tina Turner. We celebrated Tina Turner, or celebrated, we noticed. Talked about Tina Turner a lot because she recently passed away at the age of 83. She always projected in her act an assertive woman, woman who is in control, a woman who came right in your face and said it, you know, and didn't really give a damn about what people thought of it. She was born Anna Marie Bullock in Nutville, Tennessee. That was the title of 
one of the songs we just played. Uh, when you get to Nutville, just keep going. Better just keep going. Um, she started to work with Ike Turner at the age of 16, and um, Ike's come in for a lot of negative <coughs> commentary, deservedly so, even in his own, by his own admission, he always was never faithful to Tina. He gave her the name Tina Turner. He was one of the real pioneers of rock and roll. Man who labored in the 50s now, playing rock and roll, proto rock and roll songs, and never got recognition for it. A couple of times his own work was co-opted by other artists and he didn't get credit for it. Um, he designed the whole the whole act and uh, evidently she choreographed it um, but her life was uh, horrific. The, uh, some of the things if you see the uh, the uh, documentary, called Tina, uh, she tells just straight out graphically what, what Ike would do to her. She Finally, they had a hit with Proud Mary, the Creedence Clearwater Revival, which song which uh, they just blew away. Creedence made a great song, but they just, Ike and Tina made a big hit out of it. And uh, I played uh, her version of Honky Tonk Women. Um, she opened for the Rolling Stones, later on worked with the Rolling Stones. Um, so here's celebration of Anna Marie Bullock, a.k.a. Tina Turner. We love you, Tina. Okay. This is the B. If you live in the mission, uh, I have good news for you. There's a great 
restaurant specializing in Mexican food at 20th and South Van Ness. It's called San Jalisco. Como México no hay dos. Common saying no hay dos. Two of this thing. Y como San Jalisco tampoco. For over 40 years, the Ibarra family has been serving up the very best in Mexican food to the people of San Francisco. What's your favorite? Enchiladas? Tacos? Chilaquiles? The ultimate in birria? The best salsa and chips in town brought to you before you order? How about your favorite vegetarian omelets, burritos, and tacos? Vegetarian. They got them. Find them all and more at San Jalisco, corner of 20th and South Venice, in the very heart of the mission. Come on down to San Jalisco, where the food tells you you're in Mexico. And I can add to that a personal, personal opinion. The, the very best in uh, Mexican food, as well as, quote-unquote, American dishes. Okay, let's take a little break here and uh, get on to part two of our show. With me, with me. music today is from Johnny Otis, the greatest Johnny Otis show. Keep the light shining too, baby, just for you, ooh-wee. My poor heart is sad and lonely, and I'm living in misery. Okay, I want to concentrate now on something we don't do much of, but we should, which is poetry. I want to start with William Blake. William Blake was an English poet, painter, and printmaker, largely unrecognized during his life. Blake is now considered a seminal figure in the history of poetry visual arts, and the Romantic Age. He came to be highly regarded for his expressiveness and creativity and for his philosophical and mystical undercurrents within his work. Um, Blake was is one of the mystics, but he absolutely could see, he was absolutely on the side of working people. And one of his poems 
one of his poems is called London. Well, I had it. Let's let's talk about some other poets. See if I can London. forged manacles okay and here's how it goes um, <clears throat> I'll read it to you twice so you get it London by William Blake I wander through each chartered street near where the chartered Thames does flow, and mark in every face I meet marks of weakness, marks of woe. In every cry of every man, in every infant's cry of fear, in every voice, in every band, <clears throat> the mind-forged manacles I hear. How the chimney sweepers cry, every blackening church appalls, and the hapless soldiers sigh, runs in blood down palace walls. Most through midnight streets I hear how the youthful harlots curse, blast the newborn infant's tears, and blights with plague marriage. So this poem is about bondage. I wander through each chartered street near where the chartered Thames does flow and mark in every face I meet marks of weakness, marks of woe. In every cry of every man, in every infant's cry of fear, in every voice, in every band, mind forged. How the chimney sweepers cry, every blackening church appalls. And the hapless soldier's sigh runs in blood down palace walls. But most through midnight streets I hear how the youthful harlots curse, blast the newborn infant's tears, and blights with plague and marriage. We're talking about bondage here. And Blake suggests that a lot of our bondage is mind-forged. It has nothing to do with reality or nature. The laws, the regulations, customs that hold us in prison. Streets are charted, they're mapped out. And people are oppressed by it. Chimney sweepers, the working people, the soldiers, running in blood, blackening the church. And finally, the absence of love, the harlots and the newborn infants. William Blake.
Okay. Let's see what else we got. Martina Spada. Leave us to those who have failed. Patterson Silk Stripe. Preface by Walt Whitman. Leave us to those who have failed and to those whose war vessels sank in the sea and to those themselves who sank in the sea and to all generals that lost engagement and all overcome heroes <clears throat> and to the numberless unknown heroes equal to the greatest heroes. Martina Spada writes the red flag. The newspaper said the strikers would hoist the red flag of anarchy over the silk mills of Patterson. At the strike meeting, a dyer's helper from Naples rose as if from the steam of his labor, lifted up his hand and said, Here is the red flag, brightly stained with dye from the silk of bow ties and scarves. Skin and fingernails boiled away for six dollars a week in the dye house. He sat down without another word and sank back into the fumes, name and face rubbed off by oblivion's thumb like a Roman coin from the earth of his birthplace dug up after a thousand years as the striker shouted the only praise he would ever hear. He was the other Valentino, not the romantic chic and bullfighter of silent movie places who died too young, but the Valentino standing in his stoop to watch detectives hired by the company, fully strike breakers into a trolley, and a chorus of strikers bellowing and would scab. It was not a striker or a scab, but a bullet fitted to scatter the crowd, pulled the cork in the wine barrel of Valentino's back. His body, pale as the wings of a moth, lay beside his big belly. Two white-veiled horses pulled the carriage to the cemetery. 20,000 strikers walked behind the hearse, flooding the avenue like the river that lit up the mill, surging around the tombstone. Blood for blood, cried Tresca. At this signal, thousands of hands dropped red carnations and ribbons into the grave till the coffin evaporated into a red sea. Reed was a Harvard man. He wrote for the New York Magazine. Big Bill, the organizer, fixed his good eye on Reed and told him of the strike. He stood on a tenement porch across from the mill to escape the rain and listen to the weavers. Blue coats told him to move on. Harvard man asked for a name to go with the number on the badge and the cops tried to unscrew his arms. Stocker. The judge asked his business, Reed said, poet, 
judge says, 20 days in the county jail. Reed was a Harvard man. He taught the strikers Harvard songs, the songs with which rebel words at the gates of the mill. Strikers taught him how to spot the insects in the stoop, speaking in tongues the gospel of one big union on the eight-hour day, cramming the jail to the weary jailers had to unlock the doors. Reed would write, there's war in Patterson after strike. So that was a song by Martin Espada celebrating the 1913 Patterson Silk Strike, which, as he admits, failed. Viva to those who have failed. One more. June Jordan, at the throat of Soweto, which is a neighborhood in South Africa, a devil language falls slashing claws, syllables to shred and leave raw, the tongue of the young girl learning to sing her own name, where she would say water, they would teach her to cry blood. Where she would save grass, they would teach her to crave crawling into the grave. Where she would praise father, they would teach her to pray. Somebody please do not take him away. Where she would kiss with her mouth, my homeland, they would teach her to swallow this dust. But words live in the spirit of her face and that sound will no longer yield to imperial erase. Where they would draw blood, she will drink water. Where they would deepen the grave, she will conjure up grass. Where they would take father and family away, she will stand under the sunshine. Stay. Where they would teach her to swallow this dust, she will kiss with her mouth my homeland. And stay. With the song of Soweto, stay. Of you can find these poems, poems of protest, resistance, and empower, online at the Poetry Foundation website. Let's listen to some labor history and then a couple campaigns that are going on right now. Memorial Day Massacre, 1937. This is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1937. That was the day that came to be known as the Republic Steel Massacre or the Memorial Day Massacre in Chicago, Illinois. Workers had gathered to rally for a union at the Republic Steel Plant. The crowd included men, women, and children and began with a festive holiday atmosphere. But soon the festivity gave way to horror as police opened fire, shooting indiscriminately into the crowd of workers. Ten workers were slain, many others were injured. The violence was caught by a film camera, which captured chilling scenes of policemen beating workers with clubs as they tried to flee the violence. 
One of those workers was a woman by the name of Guadalupe Marshall. Lupe had come to the United States from Mexico in 1917. At the time of the strike, she was working for the famed Chicago Hull House, researching the conditions of Mexican workers in the city. During the massacre, she was wounded in the head. She was then shoved into a patrol wagon where she tried to help other wounded people. One of the wounded died in her arms. Later, she testified before the U.S. Senate Committee of Education and Labor about what she saw that day. She said, quote, as we were walking along to the patrol wagon, I noticed men lying all over the field. Some of them were motionless, some were groaning, but nearly all of those that were lying down had their heads covered with blood and their clothing was stained with blood. The Senate committee helped expose what happened that bloody day in Chicago. The local newspaper blamed the violence on the workers and the film of the event was suppressed on by the city. Dark Republic's bloody ground, the 30th of May. Oh, brothers, lift your voices high for them that died that day. The men who make our country steal, the toilers in the mill. They said in union. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1987. That was the day that Rose Will Monroe, one of the women who came to be known as Rosie the Riveter, died in Clarksville, Indiana. She was 77 years old. Rose had gone to work in a factory making B-52 bombers in Ypsilanti, Michigan during World War II. She was one of thousands of women in the United States who entered the industrial workforce to support the war effort, while more and more men entered the armed forces. While Rose Will Monroe worked at the factory, the image of Rosie the Riveter was already becoming perhaps one of the most iconic symbols of U.S. labor. The nickname Rosie the Riveter was first used in a song in 1942. The song was inspired by another real-life Rosie. Rosalind P. Walter worked during the war building Corsair fighter planes. Along with the song, a popular poster showed Rosie with a red kerchief tied around her hair, sleeves rolled up, arm muscles flexed, showing the strength of women workers. We Can Do It wasn't blazed across the top of the poster. Then, an actor by the name of Walter Pigeon visited the Ypsilanti factory. He was helping to make a promotional film to support the war effort at home. When he found out there was a real Rosie who worked as a riveter in the plant, he recruited her for the film. The image of Rosie the Riveter lives on as a symbol of labor and women's empowerment. All the day long, weather rain or shine, she's a part of the assembly line. She's making history, working for Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1981. That was the day that the Cannery Murders took place in Seattle, Washington. Two union organizers, Silmi Domingo and Jean Veronez, were gunned down at their labor hall. They were working to reform the cannery industry for local 37 of the International Longshoremen's and Warehousemen's Union. Silmi and Jean were second-generation Filipino-Americans. They organized against the discrimination
discrimination and segregation faced by Filipino workers who labored in the summer Alaskan fishery canning industry. They were also part of a reform effort trying to build more transparency and accountability within the union locals leadership. Frustrated by the lack of support by Local 37 for the anti-discrimination campaign, the two organizers founded a legal advocacy group, the Alaska Cannery Workers Association. The ACWA filed lawsuits on behalf of the Filipino workers under the 1964 Civil Rights Act. The ACWA won their cases in court, but both the canneries and the local union blacklisted ACWA members. The court ordered the reformers reinstated. Back at Local 37, the reformers formed a rank-and-file group to fight for change in the union. Then, on that fateful day, Silmi and Jean were shot by members of a local street gang. But weeks later, when the gun was found that was used in the murders, it was registered to the president of Local 37, Tony Baruzzo. An investigation found that the murders were the result of a conspiracy that went all the way to Filipino dictator Ferdinand Marcos, who wanted to silence Filipino opposition to the United States. Tony Baruzzo was eventually tried and convicted for the murders. Silmi and Jean are now honored by the ILWU as brave reformers who gave their lives for their union. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1916. That was the day that John Greena, an Italian immigrant miner, walked out of the St. James Mine in Aurora, Minnesota. The mine was part of the Mesabi Iron Range, the richest deposit of iron ore in the United States. The Mesabi Range takes its name from an Ojibwe word meaning Great Mountain. John Greena was frustrated with the long hours and low pay in the mines. Soon, 8,000 miners joined him on strike. The strike was led by the industrial workers of the world. The workers demanded an end to the contract labor system. Under this system, they were paid for the amount of iron ore they mined instead of a daily wage. This meant that those assigned to easier-to-work mines earned more. To get a good assignment, you often had to bribe the manager with gifts. The workers went on strike to end this system and to fight for the eight-hour day. But the mine owners were determined not to give in. They brought in hundreds of armed guards to oppose the strikers. One miner was killed in a fight at the Oliver Mining Company. At the funeral, mourners marched under a banner that read, Murdered by Oliver Gunman. Organizers for the IWW union were jailed. Without the leadership, by September, the strike had ended. Although the strike failed to reach a formal settlement, most of the mines did institute pay raises and the eight-hour day. From the Nongahela Valley to the Masabi Iron Range the coal mines of Appalachia, the story's always the same. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at laborhistoryin2. Hey, let's move now to uh, some contemporary issues. And just recently, the Supreme Court conservative Republican Supreme Court voted eight to one with a couple of the more liberal justices chiming in that 
In a case, let's read what the case was. The question the Supreme Court considered in the Glacier case was whether the employer could sue Teamsters Local 174 in state court <clears throat> over damages caused by a strike when ready-mix concrete was allegedly left to harden in trucks. Prior court cases say that an employer can't sue a union in state court over activity arguably covered by the National Labor Relations Instead, the employer has to go to the National Labor Relations <clears throat> The Supreme Court did not order the trial court to decide against the union, just that the case could be allowed to proceed. And it left open the possibility for the state courts to dismiss the case again. There is an exception, though, if striking employees intentionally damage employer property or don't take reasonable precautions to protect employer property. For example, in one case, employees walked out of a foundry when molten iron was ready to be poured, which the court found could have caused substantial property damage. The exception is narrow. Property damage that is intentional or caused by lack of reasonable precautions doesn't include things like economic losses due to temporary closure of a store or factory, strawberries rotting in the field because farm workers are on strike, or milk going sour in the fridge because baristas have walked out. The trial court in Washington dismissed Glacier's claim because it found that the Teamsters' strike action was arguably protected under the National Labor Relations Act. Washington State Supreme Court affirmed. The United States Supreme Court has now overruled that decision and sent the case back to the trial court because it says that, assuming the facts alleged in the employer's complaint are true, the union did not take reasonable precautions to prevent concrete from hardening. Supreme Court did not order the trial court to decide against the union, just that the case can be allowed to proceed. It left open the possibility for the state courts to dismiss the case again, depending on what the NLRB does about a pending unfair labor practices complaint against Glacier related to the same strike. NLRB issued its complaint against Glacier after the Washington State Supreme Court affirmed dismissal of the state court case. The U.S. Supreme Court explicitly did not rule on whether the lawsuit would have preempted, been preempted if the NLRB had issued complaint. So it could be that it could be a relatively small change or another in an escalating series of court decisions chipping away at the right to strike. So this is obviously the target of the powers that be, of the owners of the owner class. The right to strike. Once they take away the right to strike, 
What have you got? Just watch these cases carefully because this is what's happening right now. Okay, I wanted to uh, talk about Luisa Moreno today because Luisa Moreno is one of the ragers on this place called Womanaka. Let's see. Manica. Make you feel isolated and scared. Listening to one another is how we build strong and supportive communities. That's why Planned Parenthood is sharing stories of resilience and hope from real people who've had abortions. Let's help create a world where everyone can get the care they need. Learn this is an introduction from when and stigma. Live in Vegas is back with more energy, more excitement, and more of the artists you want to see, like Katy Perry, Seal, Carrie, Un Carrie Underwood, Keith Urban, B52. Visit LasVegas.com. Contributions as a labor organizer and civil rights activist were just as significant. Let's talk about Luisa Moreno. Blanca Rosa Lopez Rodriguez was born on August 30, 1906 in Guatemala. Her family was upper class and sent her to a boarding school run by nuns in Oakland, California. She returned to Guatemala as a teenager, but for Blanca, school was over. At the time, women in Guatemala weren't allowed to go to college. But Blanca wouldn't accept this. She organized a group to lobby for a woman's right to higher education, and won. After that, Blanca spent a few years in Mexico City. She spent her days writing news articles and her nights writing poetry. In 1928, Blanca moved to New York City with her artist husband and infant daughter. To help pay bills, she worked long hours for very little pay at an industrial garment factory. It was there that Blanca experienced a political awakening. She and her fellow workers, many of whom were people of color, faced additional discrimination. Blanca started participating in strikes. At one, she was beaten by the police. She shed her birth name, separating herself from her wealthy family who didn't approve of her radical politics. She selected two new names instead. Luisa, after the Puerto Rican labor leader, Luisa Capetillo, and Moreno, dark in Spanish a literal nod to the non-white working-class people she wanted to fight for. In 1930, she registered with the Communist Party. Fed up with poor working conditions, Luisa finally quit her job at the garment factory in 1935, joined the American Federation of Labor, and became a full-time organizer. Luisa's first stop was Florida, where she organized tobacco workers who labored for hours under the hot sun for meager wages. This was the first of many wins. Next, Luisa joined the United Cannery Agricultural Packing and Allied Workers of America. 
She traveled across the country and successfully organized peat harvesters in Colorado, pecan shellers in Texas, and cannery workers in California. She went on to become vice president of the organization. Luisa was elected to the CIO Council, becoming its first Latina and first female member. In 1938, Luisa combined her passion for workers' rights and civil rights and founded El Congreso de Pueblos Hablan Española, or the Spanish-Speaking People's Congress. More than a thousand delegates from upwards of 120 organizations gathered in a compact, poorly air-conditioned room in Los Angeles for the Congress's first convention. Luisa enraged the audience with stories of unsafe working conditions, often swept under the rug by shady business owners. One worker's face was seriously deformed while working in a chemical factory. Another lost three fingers while operating machinery. A railroad worker lost his leg while on the job. The Congress worked tirelessly to earn protections from deportation and discriminatory legislation, as well as for housing and education reform. The organization was a monumental resource for Spanish-speaking laborers in California. After World War II, a new, potent fear of communism was sweeping across the country. Luisa had only been involved in the Communist Party for a short time, and already retired from organizing. But her radical history was enough to make the U.S. government suspicious and to consider her a threat. In 1950, Luisa was issued a deportation notice. The federal government offered her citizenship, if she routed out one of her fellow organizers. Luisa refused. Why wait to be forcibly removed? So, in November of that same year, Luisa went ahead and returned to Mexico alongside her daughter and her second husband, a former Navy man and activist named Gary Bemis. Luisa emerged once again as an organizer, as fierce as ever. She made her way back to Guatemala and worked for the Guatemalan Labor Federation until a CIA-sponsored coup overthrew the Guatemalan president in 1954. After Luisa's husband passed away in 1960, she moved to Cuba, then under the rule of communist Fidel Castro, and organized workers there for some time. Luisa spent the rest of her days in Guatemala. She died on November 3, 1992, at 85 years old. All month we're talking about ragers. For more information, find us on Facebook and Instagram at Womanica Podcast. Special thanks to Liz. That's uh, Luisa Moreno. Uh, he organized one of the real strong organizers who worked in Southern California and was red baited out of the country by, among others, a congressman named John Kenny, who was also instrumental in ripping off Chavez Ravine from its residence uh, and turning it over to the L.A. Dodgers. Okay, here's one. For women workers at UPS... Fighting the bosses means fighting the patriarchy. And the article goes, we're on uh, the Real News Network website. UPS is a patriarchal corporation. 
on the corporate and labor side. Whether it's sexual harassment or pregnancy discrimination, women at UPS confront particular workplace issues because of their gender. This article features an interview with Michelle Espinosa, feeder driver out of Teamsters Local 135 in Indianapolis, about the gender discrimination she's battled at the company and the work she's doing to help other Teamster women. And uh, so that'll tell you about the situation UPS you see the UPS trucks all the time there's one from popular resistance overworked and understaffed dollar general workers rally against cuts May 31st dollar general workers rallied and marched toward the annual meeting of company shareholders to demand safe working conditions Goodlettsville, Tennessee. As the workers mobilized, shareholders voted to approve a resolution put forward by a progressive-leaning investment firm to conduct an independent worker safety and well-being audit on the company, despite Dollar General advising shareholders to vote no company argues that it already performed its own safety checks and audits, while the investment firms that Dollar General is unclear if employee feedback in all, at all informs safety policy. The action was organized by workers and advocates from the organizations such as Union of Southern Service Workers, Step Up Louisiana, United for Respect and the Interfaith Center and Corporate Responsibility. Their demands include safe staffing levels, paid time off, and mental health compensation following violent incidents. New and improved safety code, safer store infrastructure, and worker input on safety practices. Dollar General has come under increasing scrutiny due to its abysmal reputation regarding workers' safety. As I say, that's on uh, popularresistance.org. Check that one out. This is the B, and uh, I want to read you a bit from the work of Eduardo Galeano. Eduardo Galeano, Uruguayan, one of the great writers of one of the great Latin American writers, inspired by the Cuban Revolution, helped give Latin America fiction a worldwide readership. He wrote a series of books. Uh, it first started out kind of as a sociologist, 
chronicling the ripoff of resources from Latin America under the Spanish crown. His newspaper career began at the age of 14 when he drew cartoons for El Sol, weekly of the Uruguayan Socialist Party. Sometimes he illustrated columns with Raul Sendik, trade union leader, who subsequently became the leader of the Tupamaros guerrilla group. But something happened to his writing, so here's an example of the kind of things that he wrote. This one is called The Calendar of Days, and it's uh, an almanac different dates. So let's start with May 29th. Empires. The summer of 1725, Pietel Blajodovic got out of his coffin in the village of Kosilevo, bit nine neighbors and drank their blood. By the orders of the Austri Austrian government then in charge in these parts, forces of order killed him definitively. He was the first officially armed, recognized vampire, most successful, Count Dracula. Faced with mighty gluttons who founded banks, then made them founder, willing blood as if the whole world were a net. He knew his inferiority complex. We'll read some more of Dalai it's time now for us to go. Stay tuned for Latvia's last. Comedy at the best neighborhood bar in the city. Join your friends from Mutiny Radio every Thursday at 8 p.m. at the Bar on Dolores at 29th and Dolores. Starting after any very important sports game that might happen to be on, you're guaranteed a night of laughter for free. And when paired with the drink specials and the nicest bartender in San Francisco, it'll become a Thursday ritual. Show up to go out for comics, and please reserve your free tickets on Eventbrite so we know you're coming to laugh. is when the comedy is the cheapest. Happy hour, the most free two hours of hour-long comedy on the radio and internet streaming live at 2781 21st Street. Come down, be in the audience. Dog friendly. Dog friendly. We are. Mutiny Radio is absolutely dog friendly. Ooh.
a dog party. Ain't no party like a dog party. <laughs> dog party at Mutiny Radio. Every Friday, dog party <laughs> at Mutiny Radio. Happy hour. <laughs> 278 121st Street. Happy hour. Mutiny Radio. Dot FM. Here. In dot SF. Calling all crusties, punks, and poses. Pick your posteriors up off the pavement. Pack up your pins and patches and prepare to party. The Pacific Northwest Vest Fest returns this Saturday only at the SeaTac Expo Center. Whether you're a leather lover or just a denim demon, if you're looking to dress to impress for less, do not stress. You'll find all the best in pre-distressed vest right here at the Pacific Northwest Vest Fest. With over 40 vendors selling countless crossover styles, you'll find the perfect thing for your scene. Metal, thrash, Walmart, high-vis, and everything in between. All in one place. One day only. Unless it's a jacket. If you need a jacket, take your square ass somewhere else. Never pay for fabric you don't need and ditch the sleeves, but save the rest for the Pacific Northwest Fest Fest this Saturday only at SeaTac. Bring a can of PBR, get it half price. Daddy, Daddy, what are we going to do today? At 2 p.m. on a Saturday afternoon? Oh, over there at the parklet in front of Atlas Cafe for Tetons of Comedy. That, that's Titans of Comedy. Apparently, they've got great sandwiches, cafe drinks, and even some of my favorite beverages, like beer, wine, and sangria. All the things I drink to forget your mother. My new Uncle Blake says you smell like a brewery. What did I say about interrupting me? Anywho, right here on 20th and Alabama in the Deep Mission, paired with tasty comedy from Bay Area's favorite comics. For free! Every Saturday, or at least the two Saturdays a month that the court mandates have to see you. It's sunshine! And even in a drizzle, but not too much. And Daddy, remember after soccer practice when it was raining and you didn't come? I really don't. Anywho. You take it with the freezers. Reservations. Reservations on Eventbrite. Back in public schools. <laughs> in a tri-level dual world of stand-up comedy. Laughter has value, and the unexpected laugh is priceless. Who is that live.com? Comedy local shows on sale now. Everyone that purchases a ticket will automatically be entered into a true drawing. Who wants to focus on the genre of stand up comedy and those that, who's that? go to who is that live.com for upcoming shows? Join us on a journey into the absurd. Radio Habana, 
Thank you. That song is called Acid and Fapping. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. Listen to live streaming radio or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. Listen to live streaming radio or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco. TGIF at OMG. Third Fridays of every month at 7.30. Come to OMG on Savory 6th Street for TGIF. Thank gods, it's funny. Every third Friday at OMG. Check us out. Free shows. Great drink specials. Hilarious comics. Every Friday. San Francisco. Gouging ya. Here we go. Free comedy with Mutiny Radio. You know you love us. Third Fridays of every month. OMG. 6th Street. Come on out with your friends. Mutiny Radio. G-G-I-F at OMG. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shitface McRat. <laughs> Namaste. Every Monday at 6 p.m., it's Joke Workshop, streaming live on mutinyradio.fm. Lift the veil from your third eye on joke creation and what it takes to be a stand-up comic in the five shakasanas of San Francisco's comedy scene. This all-ages open mic invites Oh, pre-sign by Venmoing 2 to $5 at Mutiny Radio. Join us live for a small and special audience at the Mutiny Radio studio and gallery performance space, 2781 21st Street at Florida Street in the deep, deep, deep mission. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Does my ponytail look cool? Thank you. Namaste. Tuesday used to be the most unlikely night for fun. But every week at 6 p.m., come to OMG. Or at least the two Saturdays a month at the court mandate. Radio Nevada. 1109 Valencia. At 22nd. In San Francisco. The Wild Improv. Music. Every Wednesday. 